Well, as Libby uh, mentioned, today is Vision Sunday, and if you're new to P's and G's, uh, you might be thinking, well, what is Vision Sunday? Uh, Vision Sunday is, is one of two Sundays a year when we just take a step back and remind each other why we do what we do. That's all that Vision Sunday is. It's an opportunity to look again at our vision as a church and our strategy as a church and if you like to test the temperature of where we are in regard to the strategy and how we're doing as a church, as a whole church, in regard to the vision that we believe that God has given to us. Now about three years ago we adopted a new Uh, vision statement. We went through a process of about six months of planning and praying and talking and we felt that God was leading us to this uh, statement as a church. So we decided that we believe that God is calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. That's what we're about as a church. We want to help people who are Christians Um, apply their faith to every single area of their lives. That's what it means to be a whole life disciple. That Christianity isn't reserved to those things that we think of as uh, spiritual. Church, going to a connect group, going to a CU, um, doing churchy stuff. But actually the Christian faith has implications for everywhere that we go. So it has implications for how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we think about the past, the present and the future, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world in which we live, how we think about creation, how we think about everything, because it's about the whole of life. Sharing the whole of the gospel, we want to be holistic. We want to be people who will uh, be word and spirit. We want to be social transformation and evangelism. It's not either or, it's both and. With the whole of society, we want to impact all the different parts of society that we touch as individual Christians and that we touch as a church. And then through churches of grace, if we think there's one thing really that should characterise us as a church is that we are a church of grace and that any churches that we plant across Scotland should be places of grace. Because ironically and paradoxically for a nation who loves amazing grace, grace is not the word that most people associate with the church in Scotland. It's law and legalism and a God who's out to get you and a God who's out to punish you. So that's why we emphasised churches of grace. So that sounds really good. Sounds really easy. It's not. It's really, really hard. Uh, It sounds, it just rolls off the tongue, but actually it's really complex to achieve and it's really, really hard work. How do we do that? Well, we do that through what we call four arrows uh, or four building blocks of our our strategy. So we want to emphasise discipleship. We want to help people to grow as Christians. We want people to help people become Christians. That's why we do things like Alpha. And then we want people to, to be followers of Christ, learners of Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship isn't something for just the sort of spiritual SAS or the elite. You don't go and do a, a, a discipleship course or, or, or somehow it's the, the ideas come about that you go and do a, a discipleship year. That's just nonsense. Discipleship is for everybody all the time. You never stop being a disciple. And it's about learning and growing in Christ so that as years go by, weeks go by, months go by, each of us becomes more and more like Jesus. The likeness of Christ is formed more fully in us 
as the time goes by. Social transformation, that's the things that we do as a church, like uh, soul food or babies and toddlers. We want to impact the culture and the world around us, the city in which we live. And then we want people to, to grow as Christians, which is why we run a school of theology. And about three or four hundred people now have been through that. And we're running four or five different uh, classes. They've already started, but you can still join, just about. Um, and uh, they're a fantastic way of exploring more about what you believe and why you believe it. At the same time, we've been in discussion for the last seven years with our denomination, the Scottish Episcopal Church, as to how we can change or influence the way in which people who are trained to be ordained ministers, like Libby and me, how we can be trained to lead different types of churches. And so there's this thing called mixed mode training, where people learn on the job, uh, as well as doing academic training. They do it at the same time. And uh, we're actually interviewing this Thursday morning for the tutor who we hope is going to oversee mixed mode training in the Scottish Episcopal Church. So uh, please do pray for that. And then as people grow in their faith, as people are called into ministry and they're called into leadership, then we want to send people out both as church members and church leaders to plant other churches. And over the last four years, we've planted two. So four years ago, uh, we grafted one of our connect groups in Fife. Uh, Dean, who was our curate at the time, um, he went and took over three small Episcopal churches in Aberdour, Burnt Island and Inverkeithing, each with 20 people in each of them. And now those three churches exist. They still exist. And now there's a contemporary service of 100 people. Uh, that meets in Inverkeithing High School. And Dean is just doing a great job. He's the poster boy of the Diocese of St Andrews. And if you know Dean, he's loving that. Uh, and he's just loving that. Uh, but he's doing a fantastic job. And then three or four months ago, uh, we commissioned Rich and Jenny, and we sent them off with 50 church members to plant mustard seed. And they're just about a mile and a half away down on Easter Road, and they're planting a church congregation uh, together with another Episcopal church, St. Margaret's Easter Road, uh, to, uh, to reach out in that particular locality. And as part of that now, we just sense that God's calling everybody who calls P's and G's home to pray, to serve, and to give. Pray, serve, give. P-S-G. P's and G's. You see what we did that? Um, pray, serve, give. Everybody who calls P's and G's home praying, everybody serving, and everybody giving in different ways. And we'll focus more on the opportunities uh, for that next week. What I want to do this week, though, is just sort of set the scene and say why we believe that God is calling us at this particular time to do this particular thing. And I want to look at, at that passage that Judy read for us a few moments ago. So if you've got a Bible, uh, maybe on your phone, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Or if you can have the house lights up a bit, that'd be really good. There are some Bibles at the back, uh, if you want to grab one, and turn to Matthew chapter 9, or at the front of the balcony. Um, so if you can have a bit more light, that'd be great, because the, the people at the back are going to struggle to read unless they've got backlit Bibles, which are amazing <laughs> things, but we'll probably lose several of them. We'll just go up into flames uh, if they start doing that. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, that passage uh, that Judy read for us a few moments ago. It's the climax of what's called the second part, the second discourse in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel um, goes into different sections. The first section reaches its climax with what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus starts to teach his disciples what it means to be in the kingdom, what life in the kingdom of God is like. And that particular part of Matthew's Gospel is introduced by a little summary 
at the end of chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, just flip back, or on your phone, flip back, uh, swipe left or swipe right, I don't know which, um, and go back to Matthew chapter 4, and it says there in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that sort of begins that particular section. This section ends with these words. Jesus went through, in chapter 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now that's sort of two bookends. Uh, at the beginning of section 1 and at the end of section 2. And then it segues into what we call Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends his disciples out to do the things that he's been doing. Now I'm going to share with you a key theological insight that I shared with the the morning congregations this morning. Matthew chapter 9 comes before Matthew chapter 10. I know, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It takes your breath away. Matthew chapter 9 comes before Matthew chapter 10. You can tell I'm a trained professional. I went to theological college for three years. Matthew chapter 9 comes before Matthew 10 because this particular segue introduces what the disciples are about to be asked and told to do. Jesus goes about proclaiming the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness, and then he calls the 12 disciples to him in chapter 10, verse 1, and gives them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And the rest of chapter 10, the whole of the chapter, is taken up with Jesus telling the disciples what they're going to do. And what they're going to do is what they've seen Jesus doing. So that's the beginning of the next section, the third section of Matthew's Gospel. But there are three things that stand out from those three or four verses that Judy read for us a few moments ago at the end of chapter 9. Verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the people around him and Jesus feels for the people around him. The nation of Israel had had a pretty mixed history, a long history of suffering at the hands of shepherds. Now these weren't the people who looked after the sheep. The shepherds of Israel were the leaders of Israel. Mike Parker, who's one of our mission partners, uh, helpfully reminded me uh, this week that shepherds in the Middle East go at the front and the sheep follow the shepherd. We think of a shepherd and perhaps we think of, you know, two sheepdogs and and them walking behind the flock. doesn't happen in the Middle East. In the Middle East, a shepherd goes at the front. That's when Jesus says, uh, my sheep know my voice because the shepherd leads the sheep into green pastures and the sheep follow the shepherd. There's an incident where a a tour bus was going through Israel and some uh, tourists saw a flock of sheep and they saw somebody at their back and they waved their hands and said to their tour guide, look, look, we've got one, we've got one, you were wrong, you were wrong, he's at the back. And they stopped the bus and the tour guide got off 
went and had a chat with the guy who was at the back of the flock of sheep and came back with a huge smile on his face and said, he is a butcher. <laughs> he is driving the sheep towards slaughter. Shepherds go to the front. And Jesus sees the people of Israel and he sees them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's no one to lead them. There's no one to give them direction. In Ezekiel 34, in the Old Testament, Israel is described as long neglected, scattered, and even maimed because of the bad shepherds that they've had leading them. God promises, though, that he will come as the good shepherd. And in John chapter 10, Jesus reveals himself to be the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, the word that's translated as compassion when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, is a particularly strong word in the Greek language, which the New Testament is written in. Uh, I'll try and say it. It's esplanichthe. It sounds elvish, uh, but it, it's Greek, and it means move deep within his inner being, literally within his bowels. Jesus was so moved by what he saw, so moved by what he felt, that it went right to the very core of his being. Again, Mike Parker helpfully pointed out that in the West, we think. In the Middle East, they feel first. Jesus feels the effect and the consequences of the nation of Israel having had bad shepherds and now having no shepherds or leaders at all. And the reality is that that is, sadly, an accurate description of the world that you and I live in. As you look at our society, as you look at our culture, as you look at our city, as you watch the news every day, then perhaps like me, you think that that is a very evocative description of the world that you and I live in. That the people around us are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's no one leading our society is, is more fractured and more divided, perhaps, than at any other time in our history. As a world, it's smaller because of social media, but actually it's a world that is more fractured and divided at the same time. We're more connected, but we're more divided than perhaps we've ever been. And the reality, too, is that we won't do anything meaningful for God until our hearts have been moved, moved and stirred in the same way that Jesus' heart and his inner being was moved and stirred. I love the story that a guy called Rich Stearns tells against himself in his book, The Hole in Your Gospel. Uh, Rich Stearns, uh, that's a picture of Rich uh, in Africa. He now heads up um, uh, one of the world's largest NGOs called World Vision. And Rich was headhunted uh, to become the CEO of the American uh, part of World Vision and he tells this story. After a nine-month search, the World Vision Board of Directors had selected me and offered me the opportunity to become World Vision's US-based president. At the time, I was the CEO of Lennox, an American fine china and giftware company. Now, the equivalent would be Dalton or Wedgwood. Uh, it's the CEO of somebody who sells fine china, um, cups and saucers and teapots and coffee pots and plates at the high end of the market, those ones that you see in Jenner's and House of Fraser's, um, the highest end of the market, 
The CEO of that company becoming the CEO of Tearfund or Oxfam or Christian Aid. I haven't sought this position, he said. In fact, I prayed that God would send anybody else but me. I wish I could tell you, he says, that I accepted this call with a sense of spiritual excitement and passion to help the broken people of our world. I like to say that I boldly prayed, here I am, Lord, send me, that I was eager to seize the opportunity to serve. But that would be a lie. That Friday, at the end of two days of meetings and interviews with World Vision's top leaders, I had sunk deeper and deeper into a spiritual and emotional funk. I had been bombarded with wrenching story after story of human suffering, confronted with the considerable challenges that would face the new president and introduced to a language full of jargon I didn't even understand. Surely this was a mistake. What did I know about any of this? After all, I was the guy who'd spent the last 11 years selling plates, and expensive plates at that. There had to be someone better qualified than me. Returning to my hotel room that afternoon, I was at the end of my emotional and spiritual rope. I'd run out of time, and I now had a decision to make. Would I accept the board's invitation, leave my 23-year career behind, move my wife and five kids across the United States of America to Seattle, or would I turn down the job and stay at Lenox? It was one of those life decisions that changes everything, and I didn't want to make it. Now, last summer, Kathy and I... Um, met Rich Stearns in Chicago, and Rich is one of the most elegant, calm, collected, suave business people that you will ever meet. He, he, he just oozes charm. He, he spends time at the United Nations. He talks with ease to presidents and prime ministers. He's on first-name terms with Bono, although Bono only has one name, so that's not too difficult. But he, he's just... He oozes charm and, and, and sophistication. But he describes himself in this way. My wife and son decided to go to the cinema and asked if I wanted to go. I said no. I was afraid to rest and be alone. I was an emotional basket case. And so at four o'clock in the afternoon, I slipped into my pyjamas, crawled into bed, pulled the covers over my head and began to weep and pray, crying out to God to take this cup from me. It was pretty pathetic. But you see, what had happened was that his heart had been broken by the things that break God's heart. That's the prayer at the heart of World Vision. And I happen to be on the board, the UK board of World Vision. And that prayer is, is prayed by World Vision staff. Break our heart, Lord. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. And God had got hold of Rich Stearns' heart, and he's never been the same since. So he stopped selling plates, and he's become a really, really effective CEO of World Vision in America. <coughs> and I've been thinking over the summer, when was the last time that God got hold of my heart? When was the last time that I thought about the people that live in Edinburgh, or the people that live in Scotland, and I was so convicted by their spiritual state Yes, by their emotional and psychological and financial and social condition, but above all by their spiritual state, that I was moved to tears. And I want to ask you the same question. When was the last time that you were so deeply impacted by the people on your corridor, the people in your office, 
the people in that hospital where you work, the people at the gym that you go to, the people in your lecture course that you study alongside, that you were so motivated to share Christ with them because you realised the spiritual state of their lives. When was the last time that the Spirit of God so convicted your heart that you were moved to weep over the state of the church in Scotland? Or to weep over the state of the city that you and I live in? Or to weep over the state of our society and our culture? Jesus had compassion on the crowds because he saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? Well, he does something unexpected. The next bit in 37 and 38 is that he calls his followers to pray. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Well, the, the logical segue then is to say, go. But that isn't what Jesus says. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In response to the immense need, he asks his disciples first to pray, not to go. To pray. It's a helpful reminder that the God that we're praying to is the Lord of the harvest. It's one of the reasons why we've had a, a prayer week this week. One of the reasons why we've had a prayer room this week and, and quite a few people as they've sat in that prayer room have been struck again and again that God is the God of the harvest. That the harvest that we're called to work in is his harvest, not ours. That the workers may be few, but he is the Lord of the harvest. And the reality too that leads on from that, not, not only does he call us to pray, but then he does call us to go. You see, the tragedy is that this verse has been interpreted for so many years by good, really good churches and really good Christians in one particular way. Ask the Lord, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Lord, Lord, please, please, please send missionaries abroad. Lord, please send the Buchholzers to Japan. Please send the Mashes to South Africa. Please send Malcolm and Carrie Lyon to work with those in the Middle East. Please send the Boydells to work in Stirling. And we forget that actually every single one of us is a mission partner. Every single one of us has a harvest field. Where you work, where you stay, that is your harvest field. Your school, your university, your college, your office, your hospital. Wherever you work, wherever you stay, that is your harvest field. That's why Josh has been challenging us to think who are we going to invite this Wednesday to the Alpha launch? Who are we going to bring? Because they're not going to come probably if we don't come without them. Are we going to come alongside with them on Wednesday evening and perhaps come for the first few weeks to the Alpha course with them? Because they don't know what happens in an Alpha course. And they're probably terrified about what's going to happen in an Alpha course. They will look at Josh and be terrified. With good reason. But they don't know what happens in an Alpha course. They won't come unless you bring them. Unless you come too. But that's your harvest field. That's my harvest field. But the next thing, having asked the followers, his disciples, to pray, is then to send his disciples out. 
They become the answers to their own prayers in chapter 10, verses 1 to 42. Not here I am, but send him. Jesus sends them into their harvest field. And again, he tells them to do what he has been doing, what they have observed him doing. To proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. He calls them to be whole life disciples. He calls them to do what they have seen Jesus doing. And the reality, again, that we want to underline this week and next week is that every single one of us is called to be a whole life disciple. Every single one of us is sent to pray, to serve, and to give. So where are we as a church? Well, as I've thought over the last few days, I think there are a number of things that have struck me. The first thing is that we're probably in a time of transition as a church. If you're new to P's and G's, if you're just finding your way into P's and G's, perhaps you've come to the city to start a new job or, or perhaps be, be, you're a student and you just started coming to P's and G's, you're coming in at, at a, a really exciting time, but it is a time of transition. Uh, because over the last uh, four or five months, um, there's been a sort of turning over of people. Uh, we've, we've lost Rich and Jenny, who've gone to lead Mustard Seed. We've lost James Green, um, who's gone to be a vicar in Liverpool. Uh, we're about to lose James McSporran, who's got a fantastic job. He's going to travel the world and we'll follow him on Twitter and get green with envy uh, as to where James is going to go. But there's a lot of change going on in the church. The 50 people who've gone to be part of Mustard Seed, they were really, really core people. They were people who have been in this church for decades, some of them. And if I'm honest, I've, I've caught myself over the past few months looking around the church and thinking, oh, so-and-so used to sit there. So-and-so used to sit there. So-and-so used to sit there. And they're no longer here because they're a mile and a half away with mustard seed. And that's great, and that's right, and that's proper. And we want to bless mustard seed, and we want it to grow. But it does leave a hole. And it does leave a bit of an ache in some of us. And there's been a bit of a grief reaction in some of us. And quite a sadness around. But I sense at the moment that God is, 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 is sort of... Well, there were four words in the prayer room that Anna, who did the prayer room for us, put up. And the words were this. Plowing, planting, growing and harvesting. And as I was spending time with the staff in the prayer room this week, it just struck me that, that really we're at the plowing stage. The soil is being turned over. And it's absolutely necessary for this to happen. There has to be some turning over. There has to be some turning over of the soil. Because if you don't turn over the soil, then it's not ready for the planting. And without the planting, there's no growth. And without the growth, there's no harvest. But we're at the planting stage. The soil is being turned over. And that doesn't always feel comfortable. That feels uncomfortable. And sometimes it feels during the ploughing stage as though not very much is happening. If you, if you drive past a, a field and there's a, you know, a tractor just ploughing, there's not a lot of activity apart from birds coming down to swoop the worms. That's all that seems to be going on. And the, the, the field just lies there fallow and ploughed seemingly for a, quite a long time. But it's an absolutely vital time because something is happening underneath the soil. Something is happening to the soil. It's getting ready for the new seeds. It's getting ready for the new growth. It's getting ready for the new planting. It's getting ready for the new 
growth and, and harvest. And that's what I think is happening to us at the moment. So if you're new to P's and G's, it's a time of opportunity. It's a time for you to be part of that turning over of the soil. Not just because there are loads of gaps on rotors, which there are. We lost nine keyboard players to mustard seed. Nine keyboard. I mean, you could say, well, it's all right for you as a church to have nine keyboard players. Well, it's great, but last week I was playing chopsticks. It's not great. So if you can play the keyboards, Mark Cameron would love to chat to you. We need some people who perhaps in the past have taken a step back and, and looked at the coffee rotor or the welcome team or the sound team or the presentation team and, and, or the music team and gone, well, they seem to have everybody that they need. We haven't got everybody we need. We need you to play your part. And if you're new to the church, it may be counterintuitively, counterintuitive, but join the welcome team or join the coffee team. Because if you're new, you have a fantastic opportunity to ask people's names. And if you are wearing a red gilet or you're behind a, a coffee pot or tea uh, serving post, everybody thinks that you've been here for years. So it's a really great way of getting to know people. So it's an opportunity for you to serve as well as give and as well as pray. But it has been tough, and it has been emotional. But it struck me during the, the, the time in the prayer room that that cycle of ploughing and planting and growing and harvesting is a cycle that happens every year. And it has to happen. It has to happen. And it should happen to a church. It should happen to a church. There should be a turning over. There should be a growing. There should be a planting. And there should be a harvesting. That's what happens because churches are organic things. And they're supposed to grow. The church is not the building. The church is you and me. It's people. And if you look through the New Testament, churches are supposed to to grow because things that are organic, if they're handled right, if they're fed right, if they're watered right, if they're looked after right, they're supposed to grow. Churches are supposed to grow. So growing churches will plant new churches. That should happen. We've planted two in the last four years. And we hope to plant another one in the next three or four when we've got the emotional strength again to do it and someone to lead it. But we just got an insight this week as to the difference planting a church can make. Four years ago, we sent Dean and our, our Connect group in Fife uh, to do this thing called All Souls Fife. Well, on Wednesday lunchtime, we had a, a prayer lunch for about 60 church leaders from across the city. And we were encouraging each other to think about courses like Alpha and Christianity Explored and to hear stories of people who'd become Christian. And, and there were two people who were asked to share their story. And one of them was a guy called Winston. And Winston came up onto the stage and he was interviewed by Dave Hill, who, who runs something called Try Praying. You've probably seen the bus adverts uh, in Edinburgh and across the UK. And Winston just told his story. His wife had come back to faith in Jesus after many years away. And the way that she told her husband was that when he came home from work one day, there was a tri-praying booklet on the coffee table in front of him. And what Winston noticed was that each night when he came back from work, the tri-praying booklet had been moved nearer and nearer to him each night. 
And so by about the Thursday or the Friday of this week, it was right in front of me. It started over there, but it got nearer and nearer and nearer. And he thought, I'm going to give this a go. So he read the whole thing cover to cover. You're not supposed to do it like that, but he read the whole thing cover to cover. And he thought, I'm going to try praying. And so he went to bed that night, and he just said to God, hello. And then he went to sleep really simple way of describing beginning a relationship with God. Lying in bed, looking up to the heavens and going, hello. And then he rolled over and went to sleep. But from that moment on, God started working in his life. He went to something at a local church. He went on something called an Alpha course that was led by this mad American called Dean. Dean that we sent four years ago into Fife. And Dean took him through the Alpha Course and they got to the day on the Holy Spirit. And Winston had this amazing experience of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit of God just fell on Winston. And his whole life has been changed. His whole life has been transformed. Now we didn't know four years ago when we sent Dean in our connect group that four years later Winston would be standing on this stage telling his story. But it's a story of that growth cycle. And it's the story of God planting a seed. And it's the story of God then growing that seed. And it's the story of then God then harvesting that seed four years later to the point that Winston got baptised in the Firth of Four. I mean, you've got to be committed to be baptised in the Firth. None of this, you know, warm water stuff like we do. It was open water in the Firth of Fourth in Fife. Just about said that. It was cold. But he wanted to do it because of the difference that Jesus had made to his life. So when was the last time that the Holy Spirit gripped you in such a way that you wept for the people around you? When was the last time that you looked where you live, where you work, where you stay, and thought of it as your harvest field, the place that God has sent you, the place where God has equipped you to be the person who will proclaim the kingdom of God through the way in which you live? That's why we do church, so that more people will hear about Jesus. But if that's going to happen, it's only going to happen as we are moved and our hearts are changed. We weep over the city and the Spirit of God moves in our lives in a fresh way. Just this summer, the Spirit of God has been moving in my life in a new way. Something happened. Uh, some of you know that I was asked to go and speak at a, a conference called New Horizon. And uh, it's about 3,000 people uh, go to this conference. It's a bit like Keswick. It's a bit like New Wine. Um, and there's 3,000 people meet in this big top. And they're not daft. Um, they put it near Port Rush and Port Stewart and Coleraine, the most beautiful parts of Northern Ireland. It's a fantastic week. Um, and they asked me to speak on the Holy Spirit. But something happened to me before I'd given my first talk. In the opening worship, the Spirit of God just met me in a fresh way. In a way that he hadn't met me for several years. When I got back that night, I'd taken Josh, our eldest uh, child, with me as, um, as my plus one. And I said to him, any feedback um, about tonight? And he said, well, Dad, it's really good to know two things. And I said, what's that? He said, one, that you do believe in the Holy Spirit, and two, you still believe in Jesus. That was a nice affirmation by my eldest son, who uh, affirmed me. Um, but it was an amazing week. 
On the last but one night, they'd asked us all to speak about the Holy Spirit and different aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And on the last but one night that I was speaking, I used this illustration that I think I've used in church and I think is used on the Alpha course as well. And it's this picture from the Bayer Tapestry. And uh, the Bayer Tapestry um, commemorates the invasion by William the Conqueror of uh, England in 1066. It's actually where the Richards come from. There were no Richards uh, before 1066. Uh, we came over with the Normans. We were Normans and we were called Richards. So they call me Richard from now on. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a bit in the Bayer Tapestry where it says, William the Conqueror comforts his troops. And the words in Latin, come fortis, are over the top of the tapestry. Now, what does it depict if William the Conqueror is comforting his troops? Is it William the Conqueror coming alongside his troops and going, I know it's a bit hard, I know that Harold's a nasty guy, but you've got to go back into battle, there, there? No, it isn't like that. What William the Conqueror is depicted as doing is he's got a spear and he's ramming it up the backside of his troops. And that's the picture. William the Conqueror is comforting his troops by prodding them up the backside and sending them back into battle. It's quite a powerful picture of the Holy Spirit. Well, the people who run New Horizon thought that I should be given a reminder of it. So on the last night, they presented me with this. And they gave it to me and said, good luck getting that back on EasyJet. <laughs> and they had it made in a steel factory just outside Coleraine and it's inscribed new NH New Horizon 2017 um, but I'm going to have it in my office and I'm going to use it during staff meetings <laughs> but I'm also tempted to use it during Sundays so if I see anybody falling asleep in services but it's a really powerful illustration for me of the work of the Holy Spirit because as well as it being a time of ploughing and as well as a time of the soil being turned over, I think the Holy Spirit wants to stir us. I think the Holy Spirit wants to prod us. I think the Holy Spirit wants to strengthen us. I think the Holy Spirit wants to convict us. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to lead us. The Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd, who will be at the front and who will lead us. But when was the last time that your heart was so moved that you wept over our city? When was the last time that you were so moved to think of the place where you work or where you stay as your harvest field? And when was the last time that the Holy Spirit prodded you in such a way that you knew that God was calling you to go and be a worker in the harvest field?